0: you're listening to like flip radio part of the revelations radio network Well, welcome to Like Flint Radio. I'm your host G.K. On the line with me, all the way from South Africa, I have my co-host Andy. Cruzy,
1: oh, Andy. <laughs> no, not
0: Cruzy. Not Cruzy. Not
1: Cruzy this time. Oh.
0: How are you? How are you, Andy?
1: I'm fine. Cold, but fine. Cold. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, well, we are in the Southern Hemisphere and we're in winter, so uh, I'll join you with that. But our (laughs) guest tonight, who is, well, more than a guest, I guess, in this episode, because we're just going to have a bit of a roundtable discussion and I'll talk about the topic shortly. But our guest tonight is Julian Charles. And Julian is the host of what's been called probably the best podcast going around Mm -hmm. Uh, more than one person has recommended julian as um, having the best podcast
2: on the internet so julian welcome to the show hello it's very good of you to have me on thank you very much and uh I must admit, I don't know how to respond to what you've just said there. I, I think it can't possibly be true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I may exaggerate sometimes, but I never lie. And um, <laughs> But no, um, from, from more than one source, it has been called the best show going around. But anyway, listen, Julian, if you wouldn't mind, just give um, our listeners a bit of a background of what your show is all about, and then we'll move on. Just a brief background of what The Mind Renewed is about.
2: Okay, um, right. Well, the The Mind Renewed. Uh, website and podcast started in the uh, towards the end of 2012. And I guess really it was a, a response to the truth movement scene where um, um, I felt that, um, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but I felt that there wasn't the kind of Christian response to the, or input to the truth movement scene that I personally was looking for. And I felt that a lot of people might have been looking at that scene and seeing that Christianity was not particularly well represented within that scene and therefore be turned off Christianity and feel that Christianity is part of the problem. Um, And I also felt that uh, certainly a lot of the Christians that I knew were not really interested or not really listening to many of the concerns of people who were involved in that scene. And I felt, well, here I am as a a person who is concerned about these things. Perhaps if I lend my voice into this situation, I could do some good. And so that's uh, really the mixture of reasons why I started doing the podcast and the website. And uh, I've had a lot of interesting interviews in the uh, intervening period. And we've looked at some mainstream subjects and some less than mainstream subjects and uh, uh, learned a lot in the process.
0: Well, I would say that um, that's a good overview because you do tackle that issue. Now, you and I have spoken about this before privately. Like I've had some concerns about some of these topics in the non-Christian field, you know, like should Christians discuss these sorts of topics because my concern is sometimes when Christians do they get it so wrong and it only adds fuel to the fire that you know sometimes people see Christianity as part of the problem but I'm glad to say that for the most part I think you nail it and and you do have also have had a great range of guests on you've been very blessed in that area can I just say that but a great show um Andy
1: oh yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a moment. Sorry, I thought sorry. you going to say something. It's a good say. thing I was not yeah. sipping my coffee at that moment <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting I that I... one.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I just thought you were going to say something and I, I cut you off. <laughs> well, alrighty. Now that Andy's, we all know Andy's got her coffee.
2: Normally that would be Cruzy having to have his coffee. That's but, right. Um, <laughs> you said, I think you said before the interview that I should play the part of Cruzy. Yeah, um, I don't that you have. I don't have a cup of coffee, so. <laughs> that, that, and the that, accent that has be, changed.
1: Yeah, that would be it the has, very yeah. first thing you would need to do is have some coffee.
0: <laughs> coffee and and a joke or two, but the accent it seems to have changed. <laughs> well, anyway, but in this show, what we wanted to discuss was the new world order, and for many, this is a bit of a nebulous topic. Really, you know, what is the new world order? And yeah, you know, right from the start, I'm going to declare that I'm not an. Uh, expert on this topic I've long been interested in it but I'm not an expert and I think both Andy and Julian probably would agree with me when I say that that you guys wouldn't consider yourselves experts either on this topic Andy, absolutely no no, no yes.
1: definitely not but I'm <laughs> disappointed to hear you're not an expert G I have to say that that is rather disappointing <laughs>
0: Well, well, I have to say I, there was one stage when I was um, very, very interested in it, but, you know, I found that it occupied more of uh, my available study time than uh, actually studying the Bible. So I will say, yes, I'm interested in it. And, you know, I thought if you guys were happy, we would discuss this topic and in a way, perhaps to spur others on to further study, because sure. um, I certainly think it's something that we all need to be across, but not to be obsessed with. Right. Um, I personally advocate for believers um, to be good Bereans and be across the whole Bible and all the topics contained within the Bible, right? But that being said, I'm speaking to our listeners now. Please stick with us as we cast, a let's say, collective Mm -hmm. optic nerve on the New World Order, right? And let's see where we end up. And so really what I've done is I've put Julian on the spot and I'm going to ask him to give us a definition of what
2: is the New World Order, okay well I'm going to work towards that um, I did when I put started putting my notes together I thought well what I'll do is I'll I'll start with a, a nice crisp definition but then after I thought about it a little while I realized that that probably wouldn't wouldn't work um, and I'm going to say straight away echoing what you said there Garth that I also am not an expert that's not the point of this um, in many ways starting to get guests onto the mind renewed podcast in order to ask them about the new world order is part of my journey of discovery and I'm going to say something about that in a Mm -hmm. moment um so this remit is to talk about the new world order and uh we've been looking at this i think right from the beginning actually in in 2012 and i've deliberately invited guests onto the program who have different perspectives on this issue because i wanted to gradually build up a picture of what this new world order is or might say what it's intended to become because I didn't want to fall into the trap of prejudging it all and uh, reaching quick easy answers because it's so easy isn't it to go onto the internet and find um, presentations that will tell you this this is exactly what it is you know and then you turn to another presentation and you find that somebody else is telling you this is exactly what it is and of course the the things don't match up so that's a hopeless way to go. So I thought that by asking people uh, from these different perspectives I'd be able to uh, kind of inductively get a picture of, of what it's about. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit more detail about it in a moment, but I thought that I would explain why I became interested in this subject in the first place. Um, It really goes back to the late 1980s, when uh, I shortly after becoming a Christian, I, I apologize now to listeners of The Mind Renewed who will, will know this story well, but I'm going to just briefly say it. I met a, a man called Brian Austin who uh, ran a small Christian bookshop in London. And uh, he, he wasn't just a bookshop owner. He was a, a kind of a Christian teacher and a, a pastor of a very small fellowship there that met uh, in and around the shop. And he was the first person to mention to me the fact that there are indeed moves afoot to bring about some form of world government. And the reason why I'm mentioning this, is because this is um, formative for me, his take on this was very philosophical and theological, following really the thought of Francis Schaeffer before him. And he saw this development towards uh, some form of world government um, as a broad humanistic philosophical trend. Now, he, he didn't discount that the, you know, the influential elites may well be involved in this, um, But it was more a discerning that there were ideas developing in the general culture for all sorts of historical reasons that were convincing people in general this is the way that things should go, that there should be greater and greater control over the world, that there should be more and more interlocking uh, authorities leading ultimately towards some form of world government. And I want to echo his thinking again because... In his view, at least if I'm reading him correctly, um, it was not something that would be necessarily obviously evil. And I've always found this to be quite an important thought, really, Um, because very often the new world order, whatever it is, and I'll come on to a definition in a bit, um, is seen as something overtly evil and and obviously tyrannical. And I'm not denying that it will go that way. I do think that it will, indeed. Um, But I think that if we... Consider the possibility that the you know the world's populations are going to be persuaded to go along with some form of world government. It has to be advertised as something that's good and attractive and positive, you know, beneficial for the whole world. Um, mm. You know, with ideas like that, there won't be any more war because you know there'll be no nation states left to fight against each other. There'll be no interreligious strife because well we'll all share one religion. There'll be no major damage to the environment because industry and Human habitation will be carefully controlled, globally controlled, you see it. So, so all these things sound good in many, many ways. Um, but, of course, the implementation of such policies to reach those goals, I think, will necessarily become more and more authoritarian and incrementally remove our natural rights and our freedoms in order to push us all in that same direction and end up basically by crushing us, mm. You know, in order to for- force us all into the same box, really. So so that's the kind of idea that I was introduced to in the late 1980s. And um, I, of course, saw this as relating to prophecy in the Bible, um, especially the book of Revelation, which speaks of an eventual arrival of the Antichrist, who will, at least for a short time, will rule over the entire world and demand allegiance from everybody and force everybody to accept that system. Otherwise, you won't be able to take part in economic life. And in order for that, eventual... Antichrist to take over that system. You know there has to be an infrastructure. It would have to be built over an extended period of time in order for him to take that position. And I think that is why we as Christians need to be vigilant and resist all moves in this totalizing kind of direction. Because we never know when that the building of that infrastructure might begin. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that it is being built now. Uh, It may not be. This may be, it may just look like that, and it might be something hundreds of years from now. But I Mm. think we need to remain vigilant that there is that possibility, because we know that infrastructure must be built at some time in order for those prophecies to come to pass. Mm. So having said all that by way of introduction, um, let me quickly deal with this formality then of defining the New World Order. And there there are two main ways that I want to try to do that. Um, and this really is informed by the uh, really interesting interview that I had with James Corbett in 2013, towards the beginning of 2013. Um, so the first one is the use of this term as it's understood in political history, generally understood, which is just as a phrase that's occasionally used quite rhetorically, really, by statesmen in their speeches, you know, at uh, dramatic moments in world history, World War I, World War II, the, the fall of communism, as a as a way of expressing the hope that now, you know, there will be a, I'll try and say it like a statesman, you know, there will be a new era of close cooperation between the sovereign nation states, you know, you get the picture. And um, mm-hmm. so, so therefore, not really, or not obviously pushing to, uh, pointing towards world government. And I think the most Famous example of this kind of thing is uh, US President George H.W. Bush's use of the term in 1990, where he gave that speech to the joint session of Congress there uh, during the first Gulf War. And I've chosen this example precisely because it's ambiguous. I'm going to mention it in a second. Um, On the surface, it seems to be just what I was talking about there a a new era of cooperation between states uh, after the, the fall of the communist era, you see. So I'm just going to read these words here. This is what he said. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, can emerge. Mm. A new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, East and West, North and South, can prosper and live in harmony. Now, if you just take that on its own, that looks like that first definition. Of course, a new order of things. We have this new opportunity the, you know the iron curtains collapsed, and now we have this uh, possibility of all cooperating together and having a, a, a nice fluffy new world and I say that 's Im- ambiguous because Webster Tarpley, when he analyzed that particular speech with his background knowledge of Bush and people like that, he spoke of it in this way and just this, this is his wonderful, flowery style of writing here, but just 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 listen to the the kind of Angle that he has, uh, the kind of interpretation. The breathtaking collapse of the Soviets opened up megalomaniac vistas to the custodians of the imperial idea in London drawing rooms and English country houses. The practitioners of the great game of geopolitics were now enticed by the perspective of the single empire a worldwide imperium that would be a purely Anglo-Saxon show with the Russians and the Chinese forced to knuckle under. Like the contemporaries of the Duke of Wellington in 1815, the imbecilic Anglo-American think tankers and financiers contemplated the chimera of a new century of world domination. So here we have Bush using that term, New World Order, in a way that looks quite conventional, that's quite straightforward, new era of cooperation between sovereign nation-states But which certainly, in Webster Tarpley's opinion, might mean something more than it seems on the surface there. And that leads me to this second definition that the New World Order refers to the idea of authoritarian world government in the hands of a ruling oligarchy. And this idea is often ridiculed by people. They'll say, you know, well, it doesn't exist. There isn't a world government. This is just a fanciful. And to use the the term, I shall use it because people say it. This is a fanciful conspiracy theory. And I think that is a basic misunderstanding of this term and the way it's used because it functions in a way that's alien to most people's way of thinking because I think this term, as it's used here, is actually parasitical on Christian theology, on Christian eschatology. Let me explain what I mean. In Christian eschatology, we have the talk about the kingdom of God that's going to come. Mm. Now, when Christian theologians talk about the kingdom of God, um, they, they look at the New Testament and they notice how the kingdom of God is spoken about and they say, well, look, we have to think of the kingdom of God as already but not yet. In one sense, the kingdom is already here. In the sense that God is building his kingdom, Jesus has arrived, and and people are coming to faith in God, and God is working in people's lives. And so in that sense, the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here, the theologians will say, in the sense that the kingdom has not yet come into its fullness. It will one day come in its fullness when Christ returns, and there will be ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. Now, in a similar kind of distorted way, I think that the, the new world order is parasitical upon that. It's kind of parallel to that in a distorted way because, in a sense, the new world order is already here mm. in the sense that it may be being built as an infrastructure of control here and now, but it's not yet here in its fullness, which, of course, I've discussed before. I'm not looking forward to that fullness, but, you know, that's, that's the picture there. So I think it, it borrows eschatolo- eschatological understanding.
0: Well... I was going to say, I think, I think what you're saying there will resonate with many of us who have studied these things for a little while in that you said that it, it's a bit of a parallel to, you know, Christian mm. eschatology. And I, I think that's a great example because um, many of us would argue that, shall we say, in opposition to God's kingdom, we have uh, Satan trying to fulfill his plan and it will just be a mimic or a copy and trying to mimic or copy Uh, God's plan. So I I think that's probably a very good um, uh, way to put it. What do you think, Andy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, it is already here in many forms, but it's also growing. But I almost feel like even more rapidly than it ever was. So people will probably just come to know it as as something that's normal, as opposed to Mm. many, many years ago when sovereignty was just so important to countries. Uh, It is being whittled down more and more as we go along
2: yeah yeah I, th- I think that it 's true that that people can see it more now. It seems to be more of an inductive thing. We can actually see it happening in the world but i mean for for many years before say twenty years ago there didn 't seem to be so much evidence of this happening, and so I think it was it was easier for people to say, "Oh no, this is just a wild conspiracy theory right. but i I think that a lot of Christians seemed to detect that this was going on because we were already informed by prophecy and therefore right. looking. Uh, to, to see evidence of, of this perhaps beginning to shape up. And I think that's, I'm coming from, from there really, saying that uh, you know I think this eschatological understanding was it was important, certainly in the early days of this, to detect moves in that direction. So one one person who doesn't have that understanding, say 20 years ago, would have said, oh, this is just wild, right. whereas a a Christian looking at it would say, well, no, it's not wild. We don't have the same worldview here, and I'm informed by my worldview, and therefore I'm mm. picking out uh, right. data in the world, and I'm saying that, that there's a possibility there. Um, And I think a lot of that's still true, of course, because, you know... um (laughs) a lot of people don't see that this is beginning to shape up
1: absolutely uh, i find it so fascinating because the word that gets bandied about so much even at at university level at school level is just the word globalization and now it's just something that we say it's just everybody knows kind of what's being said but don't probably know exactly where it started and why um but it's just something that we we're being um accustomed to you know so this idea of globalization is just yeah this is fantastic and it's being popularized as we as we go along. So I think it's it's interesting just to see even how that kind of thinking is quite prevalent in society today, but we don't give it a second thought. Yes,
2: and I, I think also it's being spoken of as being inevitable as well. And I think right. that I think that's a propagandistic term, to be honest. I don't think right. I think are there are all sorts of things that are said to be inevitable. I don't think are inevitable at all. And I think this is, uh, an, uh, from a philosophical point of view, I think this is historicist understanding of things saying there's a kind of rules or laws of history that are unfolding mm-hmm. i don't think there are laws of history that are unfolding i think that's uh, i think that's that's nonsense i mean i th- i think that uh, y- yes indeed uh, god has purposes and there are prophesied things that are going to happen but uh, I don't see those in terms of law that there's a, an unfolding of historical law that must move in a certain direction I think this has to do with God's foreknowledge and this, this is a, a this is, um, to do with God's om, omniscience um, of, of propositions of tr- of truth that he happens to know certain truths this isn't, this isn't that he's actually causing all these details to happen in, in right. certain ways so I don't believe that there's a law of history but I think a lot of people do believe um, I think this is a, a kind of leftover from, personally I think this is um, Leftover from idealist philosophy Particularly the philosopher Hegel Who was perhaps the arch um, Historicist <laughs> um, Giving people this understanding that yes There's this one well, of course um, Also linked with um, Darwinian and um, general enlightenment Ideas of progress mm. That Everything is is gradually evolving and getting better, and we're working, uh, again, turning back to Hegel again, towards this um, perfect state that right. will one day um, in, in encapsulate even what one might even call the mind of God, if we were of our mind to call it that.
0: I like to look at things from a historical perspective because often we we dig back into the past. Uh, it's almost, in, in some cases, hold, like holding up a mirror. In the not-too-distant past, let's say in the 19th century, we had the rise of nationalism when, you know, you had the Italian and German states all coming together to become one nation, and then you had this rise of nationalism, and now that's seen as in some circles as a, as a negative thing and we, we've got to be global citizens, you know, uh, citizens yes. of the world, if not the universe. So, things things do change. But if we look back in history a bit further than that, I would say, look, if you are sceptical, and I really don't have a problem with healthy scepticism as opposed to cynicism, but, you know, if you're sceptical and say, look, we're never going to see a time in the future when the whole world will be under the power of an elite class or who in turn are ruled by, say, one single person, I'd argue the following. We know from history that there were times in the past when whole empires were ruled by one man. Okay, so, for example, the ancient Assyrian Empire was under the control of their king. Mm -hmm. Now, he had appointed governors in certain areas and they exerted local control, that's for sure. But ultimately, he was the one in power and um, he had the power to appoint and remove these governors, right? Likewise, in ancient Persian Empire, it's a similar type of rule. Now, moving on a little bit further, we've got the Roman Empire, Uh, where we see after the fall of the Republic that we might say was somewhat democratic. And keep in mind, there's always going to be variations in the things that I'm talking about. But broadly speaking, during the Roman empire, we see the empire emperor's rule and indeed under sets of rules and laws, but rule they did. um, They also appointed governors in conquered territories, but they ruled by the support of arms. And there were variations in their titles, their style of rule, even laws which they operated under. But the point I'm trying to make is that when we look back in time to see what we're perhaps experiencing now as modern democracy where we elect our leader this is actually something quite new in the whole phase of human history what we have now is quite uh unique it's new um we haven't Mm. had this uh widespread democracy that we have now but how do these things happen how Mm. do we get from say a universal franchise like we have in the first world for example how do we get past this idea of a universal franchise how do we undo that to get into the position of, say, you know, one person ruling over the whole world that we might call a new world order. How does it happen? Um, You alluded to it earlier, Julian, that these sort of things don't happen overnight. And I guess really at this point I'm speaking more to the people who might be sceptic about this topic, you know. A new world order won't appear overnight. I think most believers will understand that there is a time coming when the whole world will be under control of a single ruler again. Does that mean it has to happen again? No. But as you've pointed out, prophecy tells us there is a coming time, uh, provided you're not a preterist or a, a millennialist. You will understand that there's coming a time when we will be under the control of, I would say an elite class who, who then give their power and consent to one person and I always look for the biblical reference, as you alluded to Revelation. I think you can look at Daniel chapter 11, for example. You can look mm-hmm. in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 would be good to look at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Revelations 13, and if you guys won't mind, I wanted to read part of this to give you an idea really what I'm talking about here because mm-hmm. Revelations 13 verses 1 to 5 will sort of explain what I'm getting at here. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, some people listening to us Again, as both of you guys have alluded to, we're talking conspiracy theory here and they might be thinking that in a condescending or pejorative sense, especially when we talk about how do we get this new world order. The way you've put it, Julian, is certainly a possibility and I concur with much of what you say, but I see that we probably need to also touch on... Uh, secret societies. Yes. Well, um, actually,
2: I, th- 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 I was going to go on and, and talk about that. Actually, ah, as cool. one, okay. one of the one of the dimensions which is often talked about, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to include that in my definition. Sure. But I wanted to go on to discuss that. So, shall I say a few things about that? Sure. 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 Okay. Okay, so I was calling them elitist – I'm calling them semi-secret groups, particularly the ones that are talked about most of all That's across right, the world, yeah. which seem to be inspired by the idea of global governance or world government. And I do think it is right to draw attention to them, but I do have a few uh, ro- uh, reservations, Alex, I'll explain that in a moment. I don't want to go into any great detail about them because they are very well known, but I will name them. And, of course, this is the uh, the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S., or known as the CFR, uh, the Royal Institute for International Affairs here in the UK, often abbreviated to RIIA or Chatham House, mm-hmm. uh, which has various sister branches around the globe, Australia, Pakistan, Canada, etc., etc. Uh, the CFR being related historically, um, the Bilderberg Group, um, the Trilateral Commission, and probably many others as well that are less often talked about. Now, the reservations I have... Um, about concentrating on these groups, or concentrating, let me emphasize that word, is that I think they're significant, that they are made up of elitist individuals from a variety of backgrounds, many of whom do share this ideology, global governance, this collectivist kind of mentality. But I do think that too much can be made of these institutions themselves. And this is one of the things that came out very strongly in my interview with James Corbett, was the extent to which these groups overlap and have members in common with each other in many cases, and have a structure of rings within rings, which is what James Corbett was saying, um, that very often people in the outer ring of the structure of the organization really don't know much about what's going on in the inner ring. And then there might be an inner ring within that, and an inner ring with that, where the, the higher doctrines would be known. So the picture we have with these kinds of organizations is less of you know great centers of secret power, um, I think, we have a picture more of a kind of stratum of uh, international elitist power, and these organisations are like windows, if you like. That's what I'm going to call them, where we can we can get a glimpse occasionally of, of the kind of um, elitist policymaking and networking and influencing of national policy that's going on there. So I want to draw attention away from them as as. Organizations of these are the, these are the, the the bad organizations that we have to concentrate on. I think they're, they're more windows onto a greater reality that 's out there, much of it that 's hidden to us and I think we, we must know that because i 'm not privy to a lot of these what what's goes on in elitist circles. who is you know right. um, so we know there's a lot, a lot of uh, secret discussion that goes on now, having said that, I recently had a very very interesting discussion with Patrick M. Wood of the August Review and August Forecaster, and he co-authored that famous book, Trilaterals Over Washington, with Professor Anthony Sutton back in the 70s. And Patrick Wood, who I respect greatly, is of the opinion that the group which has been most effective in furthering this agenda of global governance has been, and has indeed continues to be, the Trilateral Commission. And let me again say, I don't think he's, he's saying that you know, this group and we can ignore everything else you know again it's i think it's this this window again on on, on, as a a center of activity of something that's broader um would you like me very briefly just to say uh, a little about the trilateral commission because i think this is sure uh, important because it does it it broadens out into the kind of thing you were just talking about there gar um the trilateral commission is this elitist private organization um, although it sounds official, so it's a commission. <laughs> um, it was created by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski in the early 1970s. And elitist and uh, influential people were invited to join privately. Uh, people from North America, mostly the US, Europe, Japan. That's why it's called trilateral, those three areas. As I say they were privately invited. And Patrick Wood explains that the Trilateral Commission effectively pulled off a coup in the mid-1970s of the U.S. executive by having so many members of that organization being appointed to senior positions in the Carter administration. And that influence has continued down to the present day. And he lists all sorts of high-ranking people who are really high-ranking people who are members and have been members of that organization. And the ideology that inspires that group, the Trilateral Commission, is essentially a reworking of the philosophy of technocracy, and I do think this is an insight which Patrick Wood brings to the table and think is very important. Um, it requires complete discussion in its own right, but you know, there's only so much time. So this, this was an idea that was very popular in the 1930s during the Great Depression. It was started in the US as a movement by people like M. King Hubbard and Howard Scott. It has roots going further back into European philosophy, but you know, as, as a movement. And the idea was that the best form of government at the time, they were thinking of the U.S. government. You know, the best form of government for the U.S. would be one that uh, completely got away from the old world of politics and the old world, you know, of um, old-fashioned economics, and replace it with a what they can consider to be a fully rational system of government by scientists, by engineers, by experts. Let's call them technocrats. You know, um, who would always make the best decisions or the most rational decisions for the good of the whole, for the good of society. And so we can see immediately that that's an inherently elitist idea. It's those people who know. It's the the philosopher kings, you know, in, a, in that platonic sense, uh, who are the, the best people to govern. Um, and its economic rationale was based on the, the concept of resource limits, that natural resources are, are limited. And so we need to have experts to control the allocation of resources, especially energy, Along these collectivist lines for the good of the whole, you see. And this philosophy, he explains, was kept alive at Columbia University, where Brzezinski was a professor. And we now see this technocratic ideology, or as Brzezinski called it, a technotronic idea, uh, playing out in various global initiatives uh, in which the Trilateral Commission has been heavily involved. And most significantly, that would be Agenda 21, which is at heart a a program that's that's predicated on the idea of resource limitations and the supposed need for technocrats to remake the world and administer the globe according to these collectivist principles to save the world it's a it's a deeply technocratic kind of program there so i'm going to have a a little bit more to say about that in in a bit because you've invited me to mention uh, Mm -hmm. agenda 21 in, in connection with climate change but i do see there as a you know a, a really good example of something we can actually look at and see how there is a semi-secret uh, organization that exists we could look at their documents and as patrick wood has indeed done and we can see evidence there of this kind of mentality actually playing out in real policy in the world
0: look i think when you and i and andy were talking about the topics we might cover we each knew roughly what we were going to cover but i must say i'm a little surprised how much we are beginning to look like we agree on so many things because i was going to say no i mean that i mean that genuinely you know because I was thinking, people go on about secret societies and and, and all of that, but I think what what we're looking at is a combination of secret societies, but also open groups, you know, these groups that openly agitated for a global agenda. But going back to where I was before about what the Bible says about a future world ruler, I think you'll understand, and you also mentioned this, uh, Julian, that These things will take time. It will take time to install the infrastructure that will be able to support, you know, this one world ruler or this one world system. These things take time uh, to develop. And some of the things that we'll see happening for this to take place, some will be covert and, you know, we won't actually see them. We might get rumors or you know uh, there might be windows as you mentioned but some will be over we'll know we'll see them we'll we'll know what's going on but what we can env- envisage is an interlocking network of groups working together to bring about this global agenda i personally think we're seeing it happening now, I can't be certain, you know, it's probably we're seeing the beginnings of it all. Um, For example, have a look how often nations have to bend to the will of, of the UN, you know, because they've signed agreements with that international body and sometimes but not always these agreements override national sovereignty you know in the pursuit of this global agenda right and what do our politicians tell us when these things happen hey our hands are tied we have to abide by these agreements now sometimes they might have to do with human rights or trade agreements or whatever but you know to flesh this idea of this thing happening over time i just thought to give us a little tiny glimpse into say how we ended up with the un so mm. You could argue that the UN itself was implemented in stages. So like a broad brush view, um, we have the Concert of Europe, um, which was also known as the Vienna System of International Relations. Now, I know some people will understand what that means and understand it further than I do, but it came about after the defeat of Napoleon, right? And it was an early attempt at a united Europe. And this lasted until about World War I, then after World War I, we have what, they call the, what, what was called the League of Nations. And let me read to you a little bit what the aims of the League were and see if you can see echoes of this now. Um, the League of Nations was an intergovernmental organisation founded as a result of the Paris Peace Conference that ended the First World War. It was a first international organisation whose principal mission was to maintain world peace Its primary goals, as stated in its covenant, included preventing wars through collective security and disarmament and settling international disputes through negotiation and arbitration. Other issues in this and related treaties included labor conditions, just treatment of native inhabitants, human and drug trafficking, arms trade, global health, prisoners of war and protection of minorities in Europe. Now, you could argue that some of those things are actually for the better, by the way, but mm. now this League of Nations lasted until, again, another war. After World War Two. we ended up with the UN. Um, so you can see this progressive move towards, you know, tying in all of the nations over a long period of time. Increasingly, a number of nations added. Uh, the power of that body is growing. The agreements are growing. Uh, to be honest with you, who knows where it will go next but I would argue that we've got some clues. Again, I'm going to look to the Bible for my clues. Um, we look at the Bible and examine the book of Daniel again, the book of Revelations I mentioned earlier, uh, Second Thessalonians. So really to reiterate what I'm saying is you don't get it overnight. It takes years of negotiations, some secret, some open, between, in my opinion, and I, I, I can see that it's yours too, Julian, that it happens between these interlocking groups And it's not all down to the bankers. It's not all down to all of the Jews or the Jesuits or the Masons, right? I think when we isolate different groups like that and point to them as the sole instigators, we fall into what I call the magician's trap. It's watch this hand uh, while I pull a trick on you with the other. So I don't agree with um you see some people who say listen definitely everything is down to the jesuits everything that's going on can be traced to the jesuits or the jews or whatever i don't think it'll be one group race or institution i think it's going to be an interlocking web of groups and people from all races and you alluded to that when you said about these ideas where with these groups when we look at them we get these windows into what we're looking at. Like we can't see everything, but they're windows. And I know a little bit later, we do need to talk about secret societies because they do exist. But shortly Andy's going to be talking about one particular secret society. But before we move on, um, any more thoughts, Julian?
2: Yeah, I suppose I just was reminded there of something that I've become increasingly aware of running the podcast over the last 18 months. And that is the role of misinformation, disinformation. I've become very aware that in researching these things particularly to do with uh things like uh, scandals involving intelligence agencies and the like that it seems incomprehensible to me that if there is wrongdoing in these kinds of circles that there wouldn't be the attempt to put people off and to, to, to follow the wrong kind of leads and i do see i won't go into any details about it but i have come across a number of suggestions that this is the case and so i i do think that the kinds of things you've just been talking about there that it would actually be in the if there is this kind of uh, movement in the direction that we're talking about it would be the in the interests of those who are wishing to move the world in that direction actually to encourage researchers to go down these what i consider to be false routes and say yes it's all this group or it's all that group because that can very easily be discredited and I can't imagine that that wouldn't be a tempting thing for people like that to do, considering we do see that sort of thing taking place in other areas, as I say. For example, um, to do with uh, scandals with the intelligence um, or uh, false flag attacks and these kinds of things. It wouldn't be, I wouldn't put it past them.
0: Now, and you and I have also talked about that as well, Julian, things along that line where you might see, uh, without naming any particular event because there's more than one, but where you might see video or something released that looks dodgy. Uh, we all get on board and say, hey, look at this video. You can see that this is a complete mock-up. But you've pointed out to me, and I'm not sure if it's your idea or other people's ideas, but you've pointed out to me that perhaps that's what they want us to see. And further down the track, they might pull out the actual high-quality or better video and say, Look, you you know, we've sent you down that path. Look, you've all got ego on your face, all you guys in the, yes. let's say, the truth movement or, or just people simply seeking truth and say, look, you got ego on your face. Here's the actual uh, what Absolutely. happened. Do you have any specific ones you could... I-
2: Yeah, I do actually. And this idea really came to me from speaking to Tom Secker. I felt that I I learned quite a lot actually uh, speaking to him that time and reading his book as well, um, uh, 7-7, his book on 7-7. I can't actually pull out the title just at the moment. Uh, It's an excellent book. I do recommend anybody go and read that. Um, And the example that he, uh, many examples, but the one that was most striking because it was visual, was that in uh, looking at the issue of 7-7, there were these four alleged uh, Islamic uh, extremists who uh, did the bombing that day um, allegedly and uh, there was a photograph that was released by the authorities of allegedly these four at Luton train station and when you look at that photograph it's actually an image a, 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 it's a, a single frame from a video from CCTV footage and when you look at it carefully it, there's a lot that's strange about it it looks as if it's been badly photoshopped. I mean, there are some uh, steel bars that seem to penetrate through uh, you know, a person's head and these kinds of things. And you think, well, h- how can that be? Because this person is standing in front of those bars, and yet the bar seems somehow partly to go through that person's body. So this is, oh, this is clearly a fake image, you see. It turns out that later on, I don't know how much later on, that the authorities actually released the full or larger part of the CCTV uh, video, and of which that was a frame, was indeed a frame. It was just a very bad frame for some technical reason. And of course, all those people who'd said, "Ah, oh, yes, this is definitely evidence that this is all fake," were shown, as you said, to have egg on their face. And the the real interesting question is why did the authorities release what was probably the worst frame in the video? You know, to my mind, there's only one explanation. You know, and that is that they actually thought that to encourage people going down, uh, following false leads could actually be quite a good thing that's on the assumption that it was you know a cover-up but if it was a cover-up that would have been a very wise thing to do and I think we need to be aware that that kind of thing may well be going on.
0: I think that's a very good example that one and um, you know for for someone like me I've had many aha moments like uh, uh, this is why you know several years ago I was did a lot of times uh, studying the New World Order and, you know, end times and all of that. And I won't say obsessed with it, but, you know, I spent a lot of time doing it and it came up with things and thought, aha, I, exact, I, I know exactly what's going on now. It's this. It's definitely this. But the more that time goes along, and, and, and to be honest with you, the more I uh, read the Bible and study the Bible, um, I have less of those, um, this is definitely what's going on moments than I used to, and they're more along the lines of, well, this could be it, you know. Um, I'm not so certain anymore, and because of things like you've just mentioned. That being said, though, we yeah. do have evidence for definite groups who are openly agitating for uh, a globalist agenda. We definitely do have secret societies. I know people who are in secret societies. Uh, they won't talk about it, but I know they're members. So they they do actually exist. Um, now, whether they're, you know, they're up to evil or otherwise, I'm not 100% sure, but I think we need to acknowledge that secret societies exist. And when we were discussing doing this show, as, well, actually sometime before that, Andy and I had been talking about um, Cecil Rhodes and his secret society, and I think it's probably just a good one to pull out of the box of secret societies and say, look, let's have a look at one. And let's see what they're about, because obviously for time factors and all of that, we can't go through all of them. But I think it's a good one because there is great historical evidence for this particular society and perhaps even to its continuation to this day. But anyway, um, Andy, did you want to have a bit of a talk about Rhodes and his society?
1: Sure I mean the difficulty is obviously There's so much that one can chat about Mm -hmm. But I think for the purposes of this show We're going to do a very brief overview Of Rhodes the man himself And then we can start to look at His great idea Which then led to the formation Of uh, Secret Society And really just as you guys have been chatting You know the one big thing that I think Is coming across is That there's not one single strand To any of this Um all of them seem to be a great amalgamation into a greater web that seems to have similar ideas and so the, the move towards globalisation as we uh, you know now think of it or a one world government or a one world order comes from so many different strands but it might just be good to look and focus on roads and where that strand has led even though now it's hard to really trace it back because it just kind of expands and expands as it goes along. So let's look at Wrote. The fascination with Rhodes really is just, I suppose, slightly personal because I was born in Bulawayo where uh, he is buried. Um, he's buried just outside of Bulawayo. And I now live in Cape Town, which is one of the greatest influences of where he was. And so um, as I look outside my window, and I've said it a couple of times on the podcast, you know, most of what I see as we're chatting now was owned at one stage by Rhodes and has had his influence, all over. So just a very, very brief look at Rhodes. He was born in 1853 in England. He was one of nine children and his father was a pastor, which I found quite interesting. Um, He seemed to be quite a sickly child and he had a heart condition but also um, had developed this tubercular lung condition in his teens and so on doctor's advice they sent him out to South Africa because it was a better climate to try and deal particularly with the lung condition and that's how he you know, he started out in South Africa probably around the age of 17 now around about the same time diamonds had been discovered for the first time in South Africa and was being found in staggering quantities particularly in the Kimberley area and so Lurd by dreams of instant fortunes, he trekked across the felt in 1871 and joined in the frenzy diamond rush. Now, most people will know that he soon became very key in monopolizing the global diamond industry from that time he formed uh, the De Beers group and that still exists today. Um, During this time he had been traveling back and forth to Oxford in England and he finally obtained his degree in 1881 and while at Oxford he developed this burning ambition to devote himself to expanding the British Empire and he regarded the wealth he was making from diamonds as being the means by which he had achieved his dreams and we're going to get into his dreams in just a second um he was elected in 1880 As a member of the Cape Parliament And later, I think about 10 years later He actually took office as Prime Minister of the Cape So those are all big things to happen To a very sickly little boy Who comes into South Africa And just uh, 20 years later He's the actual Prime Minister of the Cape Um, He was forced to resign The premiership of the Cape eventually And that was due to the Jamison Raids Now we won't get into any of that Because there's a lot, obviously, of other history That we could get into with him But let's have a little look at This Secret Society and how this started, Rhodes' Big Idea. Um, By the way, I'm I'm reading most of this from a website called CecilRhodes.co.za and I do encourage people just to go and have a look at that because there's a lot of interesting information that I haven't necessarily found in biographies of him. All right. So let's just look at Secret Society. He was one of the richest men in the world. And just to give you a little idea, around about the 1890s, his personal income was at least a million pounds sterling a year, which Mm. was then about $5 Dollars, which was spent so freely for his mysterious purposes that he was usually overdrawn on his account. (laughs) So that just gives you a little bit of an idea of how much money this man had. And I find it shocking. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I should just mention as well, at the time of his death, he had been instrumental in bringing almost one million square miles of Africa under British domination. So he was very instrumental in, in all of this. He was motivated by this one single thing, and that was his great idea. Um, This idea came to him at the age of 24 with the force of a religious revelation. What is interesting is that it struck him in the hours immediately following his initiation into the Masonic Order while at Oxford University. Although Rhodes was slightly contemptuous of the organization he had just joined, saying, I wonder that a large body of men can devote themselves to what at times appear the most ridiculous and absurd rites without an object and without an end. The fact remains that whatever the Masonic induction he had gone through, it would appear to have triggered something of an epiphany in the young student. On the evening after the ceremony, Rhodes sat pondering what had happened that day. Then, as he puts it, the idea gleaming and dancing before one's eyes like a will-o'-the-wisp at last frames itself into a plan. He proceeded to pen his confession of faith, in which he outlined his ambition, which was to establish a secret society whose objective would be the furtherance of the British Empire and the uniting of the entire Anglo-Saxon race, including America, into one single empire. From that day, June 2, 1877, Rhodes was a man with a mission, with his confession of faith, his guiding star, and inspiration. When he had grown to trust anybody, he would confidentially reveal his idea to him and expect the man's life to be changed immediately. Historians and biographers have criticized his naivety, but the fact remains that when Rhodes did reveal his idea to others, it often had the same effect, resulting in them devoting themselves from then on to helping him achieve his lofty aims. There was an event in Rhodes's life, soon after his illumination at Oxford, that is hardly mentioned by his biographers, which may well provide a key as to how Rhodes acquired the personal magnetism and power that he displayed from then on. Three months after his Masonic induction at Oxford, Rhodes was back at the diamond diggings of Kimberley in South Africa. One night, while staying in his bachelor quarters, a very strange thing happened. His friends, according to his biographer Sir Louis Michel, found him in his room, blue with fright, his door barricaded with a chest of drawers and other furniture. He insisted that he had seen a ghost. Immediately after this pivotal crisis, Rhodes had his previously penned Confession of Faith, which also contained his last will and testament, legally formalized by a Cambly attorney. What exactly happened to him alone in his room that night, no one will ever know, except that exactly the same thing happened to another man in the following century, who also went on to become one of the most powerful men in the world, Adolf Hitler. In his book, Hitler Speaks, published in 1939, Hermann Rauschning writes of an event that took place at the beginning of the 1930s prior to Hitler's seizure of power and his ascent to fame and infamy. Says Rauschning, My informant described to me in full detail a remarkable scene. I should not have credited the story if it had not come from such a source. Hitler stood swaying in his room, looking wildly around him. He, he, he's been here, he gasped. His lips were blue sweat streamed down his face suddenly he began to reel off figures and odd words and broken phrases entirely devoid of sense it sounded horrible he used strangely composed and entirely un-german word formations he then stood quite still only his lips moving gradually he grew calm after that, he lay asleep for many hours. In 1933, soon after this strange event, Hitler seized power, and the rest, as they say, is history. A clue to exactly what fearsome thing Hitler had witnessed is given by Hitler himself, who said to his circle of intimate friends, of which Rashning was a part, The new man is among us. He is here. I will tell you a secret. I have seen the vision of the new man, fearless and formidable. I shrank from him. On another occasion reported by Rauschening, Hitler remarked, I will tell you a secret. I am founding an order, which is pretty well exactly what Rhodes had set out to do after his illumination. How strange that Rhodes' a secret society dedicated to ruling the world should have ultimately become a living reality in the next century in Hitler's SS, or Schutzstaffel. The German scientist Oswald Spengler, in his Decline and Fall of Civilization in the West, described the spirit of colonial expansion, which possessed Rhodes as something demonic and immense, which grips forces into service and uses up mankind. And herein lies the clue to the careers of both Rhodes and Hitler, that at a point in their lives they both encountered something demonic his book also regards Rhodes with almost mystical awe as a prototype of a new sort of leader. Rhodes is to be regarded as the first precursor of a Western type of Caesar. He stands midway between Napoleon and the force of men in the next centuries. In our Germanic world, the spirits of Alaric and Theodoric will come again. There is a first hint of them in Cecil Rhodes, he said. So, that is just a little bit of the very beginning of where the Secret Society started. Um, I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that at this stage.
0: No, not me. No, I'm all ears. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Oh, so, all right. The one thing most people will know is that the person that speaks most about Rhodes in terms of the organization is uh, Carol Quigley. And Carol Quigley seems to be very much in the know of a lot of inner workings of some of the secret societies by Rhodes. I'm just going to read, but it's particularly out of a book called The Anglo-American Establishment. He talks about how... Back in 1891, three men were engaged in earnest conversation in London. From that conversation were to flow the consequences of the greatest importance to the British Empire and to the world as a whole. For these men were organising a secret society that was, for more than 50 years, to be one of the most important forces in the formulation and execution of British imperial and foreign policy. The three men who were thus engaged were already well-known in England, The leader was Cecil Rhodes, famously wealthy empire building and the most important person in South Africa. The second was William T. Stead, the most famous and probably also the most sensational journalist of the day. The third was Reginald Balliol Brett and later known as Lord Esher, friend and confidant of Queen Victoria and later to be the most influential advisor of King Edward VII and King George V. The three drew up a plan of organization for their secret society and a list of original members. The plan of organization provided for an inner circle. Remember what Julian was sharing earlier? Just these, you know, circles within circles. And that's often the way that secret societies work. And so often the outer circles don't really know what the most inner circles are, are really doing. So here we have this plan for the secret society. The inner circle was to be known as the Society of the Elect, and the outer circle was to be known as the Association of Helpers. Um, Within the Society of the Elect, the real power was to be exercised by the leader and a junta of three. The leader was to be Rhodes, and the junta was to be Stead, Brett, and Alfred Milner. During this period of almost 60 years, this society has been called by various names. During the first decade, it was known as the Secret Society of Cecil Rhodes or the Dream of Cecil Rhodes. In the second and third decades of its existence, it was known as Milner's Kindergarten and as the Round Table Group, which I don't know if you mentioned that earlier, Gillian, I just can't remember offhand. Since 1920, has also been... Called by various names depending on which phase of its activities was being examined. It's also been called the Times crowd, the Rhodes crowd, the Chatham House crowd. All Souls Group and the Cliverdon Set or Cliveden Set all of these terms were more or less inadequate because they focused attention on only part of the society or on only one of its activities the Milner Kindergarten and the Round Table Group for example uh, were different names for the Association of Helpers and thus were only part of the society since the real centre of the organisation the Society of the Elect continued to exist and recruited new members from the outer circle as seemed necessary so again by invitation which also seems to be the modus operandi it's always by invitation since this group has been increasingly dominated by the associates of viscount astor and astor is quite well known if one studies a conspiracy and stuff like that so that's just a little bit um i'm trying to see there was something else i also wanted to share Sorry. <laughs> one second. I've got way too much paper here. Edit edit cut cut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do <dear>. you
2: <laughs> Do you have anything by any chance on the connection to the council on foreign relations because that comes from that route, doesn't it?
1: Yes, I do. I do. Ah. I and I can share a little bit of that just just cool. um after maybe just one more little thing here. Yeah. Um Let's have a look. The secret society of Cecil Rhodes is mentioned in the first five of his seven wills. So he made seven wills. In the first five, he mentions the actual secret society. In the fifth, it was supplemented by the idea of an educational institution with scholarships. Um, In the sixth and seventh wills, the secret society was not even mentioned. And the scholarships monopolized the estate. But Rhodes still had the same ideals and still believed that they could be carried out best by a secret society of men devoted to a common cause. The scholarships were merely a facade to conceal the secret society, or more accurately, they were to be one of the instruments by which the members of the secret society could carry out his purpose. To achieve this purpose, Rhodes, in his first will, uh, written while he was still an undergraduate of Oxford at the age of 24, left all his wealth to the Secretary of State for Colonies, Lord Carnarvon, and to the Attorney General of Griqualand West, Sydney Shepherd, to be used to create a secret society patterned on the Jesuits. The reference to the Jesuits as a model for his secret society is found in a confession of faith which Rhodes had written two years earlier in 1875 and which he enclosed in his will. Uh, Thirteen years later, in a letter to the trustee of his third will, Rhodes told how to form the secret society, saying, In considering questions suggested, take the constitution of the Jesuits if obtainable and insert English Empire for Roman Catholic religion. So I just thought that was quite interesting, uh, just mm. to add that in there.
2: Could I just mention that you, you yes of course yeah you you, you mentioned the um, the inspiration there of the Jesuit structure that um, yes. he was drawing upon, and I just thought that I would throw in the fact that uh, G. Edward Griffin also points to an influence of Adam Weishaupt and his secret society as well, um, this being the the common idea of having this ring within rings kind of structure, so you know just to make it clear that it 's not just one um, group that uh, is the influence but it's really the the idea of the structure which is particularly influential and attractive to that kind of mindset
1: that's very interesting would that would that lead also to have links then to something like skill and bones and that kind of organization or not necessarily
2: well i think that these groups i haven't done a great study on it but um from what i've read and heard these groups do seem to have that model as their structure because it's uh It it serves so many purposes. I mean, it it serves obviously the purposes of the people who are the greatest initiates in the center, but um, it also, uh, most directly, but also indirectly serves their purposes because if you have people on the outer parts of the circles, they can be very uh, efficiently controlled because they can move through the outer to the slightly inner, to the slightly inner, all the way, all the time, feeling that they're progressing and getting to know more about the deeper truths, whatever those deeper truths might be. But always until they actually reach the, the center, they don't actually know. And um, I've, I've read and heard that this kind of thing goes on in the Freemasons as well, and that there are people who, you know, until they, right. they, they might rise to the third and fourth degrees, but they don't really know what's going on in the 33rd or whatever. Right. And so it's a, an effective and historic, um, re, it recapitulates throughout history. It's used many, many, many times as a method of elitist control.
1: It, I find it fascinating because if you if you think of it in reverse, um you know as much as people may be trying to get higher up the scale or deeper into the inner sanctum as it were, um it's also a way to keep those who are in the inner um, for them to keep people out, so they could also yes. then be able to misguide them as they wish you know so they've they yes. probably um could find someone that they feel they could invite in they do so immediately probably but if they feel that that person wouldn't serve their purpose yeah. you know they'd leave them out hmm.
2: absolutely i want to back up what you're saying there again i can't think which society it was talking about or whatever but it was a marvelous example of that kind of thing playing out with just this anecdote mm-hmm. where they were saying you know the, uh, the the new candidate will be asked the question do you think such and such and if they give the answer um, yes, then that was the right answer. They would then be asked a, a contradictory question, do you believe such and such? And if they give the answer yes, that was also the right answer. And you would be then fed in one direction or the other. You'd be either fed inwards towards greater involvement or outwards towards less involvement, depending upon the answer that you'd given. And so there was no um, revealing of anything at all. And the candidate in question thought, they were progressing in right. the right way. They, you know, they didn't know there was any other any other alternative corridor to, to travel down. That was yeah. not for them to know about. And and so, you know, it, it is a very af- effective means of control, as you say, through this this sort of invitation um, process and uh, progression process. It's uh, very effective.
1: Yeah. And you can quite understand now why many wouldn't even, you know, they heard that there's some conspiracy. They'd be like, no, that's just rubbish. I'm part of it and I've never seen that before. So you can quite understand how easy it is to even blind their own. And I I find it fascinating, actually. So, a little back to Rhodes, and let's just see how perhaps we can uh, connect him. Um, Sorry I'm reading everything, but honestly, I I couldn't do it otherwise. (laughs) So, I hope it's okay. Um, Rhodes scholars today will tell you that Rhodes abandoned his conspiratorial plans, opting simply to establish Rhodes scholarships. However, Association of Helpers member Arnold Twainby, a world-famous British historian, uh, revealed in his nineteen thirty one June speech to the Institute for the Study of International Affairs. did you mention that earlier in Copenhagen? We are at present working discreetly with all our might to rest this mysterious force called sovereignty out of the clutches of the local nation-states of the world. All the time we are denying with our lips what we are doing with our hands because to impugn the sovereignty of the local nation-states of the world is still a heresy for which a statesman or publicist can not quite be burned at the stake, but certainly ostracized or discredited this was decades afterwards had established his scholarships members of the round table groups along with members of the fabian socialist society as well as the inquiry or inquiry a group formed by president woodrow wilson's chief adviser edward m house formed the royal institute of international affairs in great britain and its american branch the cfr both Professor Quigley in Tragedy and Hope and CFR member Arthur oh, I can't say this word, sorry, in A Thousand Days have referred to the CFR as a front for the power elite and in Men and Powers. Former West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt referred to the CFR as the foreign policy elite, which prepared people for top-level missions in government and other centers of international policy and had very silent but effective ways of seeing its own succession. Now, this does go on. It's a very, very interesting article, um, The Power Elite Exposed, by uh, Dr. Cuddy. And um, he does go on to build on the spider web of all the different, you know, Players, if we can put it that way. But also, I think, just as we've been saying, it's not just one particular thing that we can look at. We can't just blame one, but we need to understand that there's an amalgamation of all sorts of concentric circles that kind of all seem to have this idea of moving towards a one world government or globalization. Mm or our wonderful world of oneness, <laughs> however you want to put it. <laughs> so, Certainly I hope build is wonderful, yeah. <laughs> yes. That's just a little bit about Cecil John Rhodes, and it might just give you a little bit of insight as to what drove his idea and what is still driving that idea today. So I hope you guys enjoyed that
0: Well, really, I think we needed to include that so that we could give an example of at least one uh, secret society as evidence that we're arguing that secret societies are in operation, but also at the same time, we have uh, groups that are openly in operation. So moving along, we're going to go over to Julian in a second. And Julian's going to talk about um, Agenda 21 and climate change. But I'd just like to point out to Julian that as he is more or less taking Cruzy's role,
2: uh, we would probably be expecting a joke by now. Oh, so, God. Julian. <laughs> uh, well, you told me before the show that the only ones that you allow are corny jokes. That's I'm, right. not sure that I, I'm not sure that I have any corny jokes except <laughs> the most corny jokes ever to have been uttered in history. <laughs> Good. Well, why did the one. chicken cross the road <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh dear mind you i do have i do have one from my childhood and that is what is the difference between a duck mm-hmm. just a duck both its legs are twice the same <laughs> <laughs> crazy will be proud of you man <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right
0: so lead us on to agenda 21 and climate change if you don't mind please julian
2: Sure. I'm trying to keep a straight face now. I know, yeah. It's um, very difficult, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's always funny when people don't laugh at your jokes, but there you go. Um, <laughs> well, again, this is another huge subject, which of course connects to what I was talking about before. I shall do my best to share with you some of the things that I've learned about it and some of the reservations that I have about climate change. I'm not a scientist, so obviously I'm just going to uh, bring to you my uh, views about it as they strike me at the moment. Um, I'm going to start with Agenda 21 because, as I was talking before about Patrick Wood and uh, he was talking about the Trilateral Commission, he believes that this Agenda 21 is at root a trilateral project. And Agenda 21, of course, is this UN document that was signed up to by many countries around the world following the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. And the intention is that it sets guidelines for governments to create policies for what it calls sustainable development for the good of the whole world. Now, that's the idea on the surface anyway. And uh, so with the sustainable development, we have the idea, I was talking about technocracy before, we we have this idea of resource limitation in there straight away. And we have that wonderfully vague phrase, sustainable development, which Mm -hmm. is not at all clear what it means. It seems to me that it could be whatever any bureaucrat wants it to mean. Um, And among its goals, of course, are things like uh, reducing human population levels, um, mitigating the effects of supposedly human produced climate change, um, educating children in global citizenship, educating us all in global citizenship uh, rather than national citizenship, phasing out also private property ownership and also introducing technologies to collect uh, data on, on pretty much everything so as to be able to administer this whole system in what they see as the most efficient and environmentally friendly way. Uh, so, of course, it is at heart a, a collectivist notion uh, because the, the ideas of our human rights and our human freedoms, which, you know, from a Christian perspective, we understand as being ours by virtue of our being made in the image of God, uh, they're compromised for the good of the whole. Well, or you, know, you know, potentially they are compromised and we, we, we may have to lose rights, lose freedoms, if thereby, you know, the greater good of the whole world is served in some way. Mm. And it has to be said, that greater good, whatever it's deemed to be, is ultimately decided by, defined by those who are in control, right. <laughs> whoever those people are. And, you know, collectivism is historically, you know, we know, it's, it's essentially a tool of control. It masquerades as this you know, pool of good intentions, mm. but really it's a, a tool that's often used that way. Mm. Um, and I think that's the heart of the, the collectivist Ideology, really. Uh, And we see this, I think, spelt out uh, or indicated in quite a clear way, really, in Article 29.3 of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. So let me just just read those. Uh, I'll read the point just before it as well. Point two. Point two goes like this In the exercise of his rights and freedoms, Everyone shall be subject only to such limitations as are determined by law solely for the purposes of securing due recognition and respect for the rights and freedoms of others and of meeting the just requirements of morality, public order, and the general welfare in a democratic society. Point three, these rights and freedoms may in no case be exercised contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations.
1: Mm, Nice we
2: we see exactly we see the limitations of our rights and freedoms not just not just a reassessment of our rights and freedoms in relation to the needs of others Mm. in this system but actually being defined by the UN so in other words we have rights and we are free so long as the UN says we are
1: that's right
2: that's what it boils down to you know and I I find that quite chilling Mm. actually anyway The underlying principle of action um, for Agenda 21, I think, is clearly indicated by an organization called ICLEI, that's I-C-L-E-I, which is the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. Mm -hmm. And this is the playing out of what Agenda 21 understands as the sort of global to local action plan. Um, It wants to implement its objectives as much as possible at the local level. And it is doing so most obviously through this NGO, this uh, non-governmental organization called ICLEI. It's accredited by the UN and its purpose is to implement this at the local level around the globe. And I I have no knowledge about the rest of the world, but Michael Shaw, who was on my program, said that in the US there are over 600 cities and counties that are signed up to working very closely with Mm ICLEI. And ICLEI's main purpose is to create city-states based on these principles of sustainable development. So I'll take those two things, sustainable development and city-states. So first of all, sustainable development, this component works hand-in-hand with Agenda 21, uh, with, with uh, things like the Wildlands Network, which was formerly called the Wildlands Project, which is working towards getting human beings off the land and giving that land, so to speak, back to nature. And so human beings need to be accommodated on more and more compact areas, so-called smart growth, housing, you know, stack them and pack them in smaller and smaller urban developments. And then the city-state component is where cities work towards becoming more and more independent of national government and are increasingly accountable to the UN for mm-hmm. the purposes of sustainability, environmental matters, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and the goal is that they will eventually become independent city-states, answerable, to an, an organisation, this is what apparently uh, Michael Shaw said, some people who are the leaders of Italy are actually saying this, that they will be answerable not to the UN, but to the United Cities of the World.
1: Mm.
2: So the idea is that the UN will actually morph into the United Cities of the World. So if we put all that together, we see a complete a goal here for a yeah. complete undermining of national sovereignty wow. and a collectivist system of control, mm. supposedly for the, the good of the whole, with those at the top defining what is good for us. Mm. And one of the main drivers of all this is the, at least it seems to me, is the idea of anthropogenic climate change. It's stated that climate change mitigation is what, you know, Gender 21 and, and Italy is, is, is trying to achieve. And I have the, the distinct feeling that this could well be the perfect tool for justifying these radical ideas and forcing them into reality I became suspicious of anthropogenic global warming. I'm going to call it AGW for the rest of what I say. Otherwise, it's going to be too much of a mouthful. I became suspicious of that back in the 1990s when I was listening to various guests actually on Dr. Stan Monteith's Radio Liberty program. And I don't remember who those guests were that were speaking. But, you know, they were saying again and again, they were warning really that AGW could be this perfect political lever to get the world to accept some form of world government. That's not saying that it actually is, but, you know, it smacks of that. It it, it smells of that, you know. And they pointed to the elitist group, the Club of Rome. Mm -hmm. And in its 1991 publication, The First Global Revolution, it admitted that it was actually looking for something that would function as a, this I'm going to quote from them, new enemies must be defined to bring humanity together. Hmm. They were looking for something for that role. And uh, let me quote from what they say there in that first global revolution, quote, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. Hmm. All these dangers are caused by human intervention and it's only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy then is humanity itself. So there they are admitting they were looking for something. That's not to say that it's not true, but they were nevertheless looking for something there that would fit the bill of bringing about this closer global unification. Hmm. So to my mind, that makes me suspicious. Around the same kind of time, I became aware of the rich Canadian businessman, Maurice Strong, who was the first executive director of UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Programme. Hmm. He was there from 72 to 75. And out of that sprang the IPCC, which we've heard a lot about, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is interestingly named Intergovernmental. Mm -hmm. You'd think Mm -hmm. it would be international, you know, of international scientists, you know. But no, no, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which uh, arrived on the scene in 1988, which is that main UN body for informing the world about the state of of climate science. And Strong, Maurice Strong, was also appointed a Secretary General of the Earth Summit, the Rio Conference in 1992, out of which Agenda 21 sprang. So he seems to be a major figure behind this. Mm. And I just wanted to point up the attitude that Maurice Strong uh, indicates in some of his quotations. These are just a couple of things here, quoting. I can't, I can't actually identify, um, I might be able to find out um, afterwards, but I can't identify where they come from at the moment. I think one comes from West Magazine's article. Anyway, these are the two quotes that I have here. Mm-hmm. Quote, isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? The other one, current lifestyles and consumption patterns of the affluent middle classes involving high meat intake, use of fossil fuels, appliances, air conditioning, and suburban housing are not sustainable. A shift is necessary, which will require a vast strengthening of the multilateral system, including the United Nations Mm. now I've long had the suspicion that AGW is primarily a political doctrine rather than a scientific one and and again I'm not saying that I'm right about this this is a suspicion a heavy suspicion that I have and my suspicions I think were heightened when I saw and I I think no there is no doubt many people will remember this as well um, Martin Durkin's film the great global warming swindle uh, which came out in 2007 And it made a very convincing case that AGW is more about politics and it's more about funding than it is about science. And one of the guests who's been on my show a number of times, Dr. Tim Ball, uh, was a consultant for that documentary. And um, I I, I think that that suspicion has continued really for me with the obvious propaganda that we have in the media, the use of terms like uh, consensus regarding the science, and I I don't see consensus as anything to do with science, really. I thought it was, right. you know, it was about, uh, science is, is in essence about questioning. But no, we're told that there is this consensus. We also have in the media this offensive branding of skeptics as deniers,
1: hmm.
2: um, which of course connotes the, the notion of Holocaust denial. Right. Um, and we have the indications from the various ClimateGate revelations that the climate science establishment, anyway, is, is, is anything but open about its research methods and is actually quite keen to prevent alternative views from passing through peer review panels and uh, therefore ending up in in journals. And, uh, you know, this whole picture, you know, quite apart from the science, and I'm, I'm, I'm not qualified to speak about that. As I said, I'm not, I'm not scientifically trained, but, um, you know, I, I believe that I have sufficient grounds of suspicion uh, that we're not being told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you know, sure. about AGW. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, you know, there are, many, there are many scientific challenges as well to this orthodoxy, and if I may, I, I would like to refer people to a particular podcast that I put out, which is actually the audio of Dr. Don Easterbrook's testimony to, I can't remember which state it was, but uh, a, one of the U.S. state senates, and the, the, where, where he, he presents uh, an impressive list of scientific reasons why he thinks that the agw orthodoxy is false so i, I would encourage people to go and listen to that particular episode there's just a few things that i'm just going to mention that don't sit well with me just for example uh, i put these together this morning actually i just thought well what are the things that just bug me and here's some here are some of them we're told that the sun doesn't account for the warming that's attributed to human uh, action you know it's human co2 it's not the sun well i find that counterintuitive um I know there are lots of things in science that are counterintuitive, but I find it difficult to believe that when there are people of the caliber, for example, of Willie Soon at Harvard and Richard Lindzen at MIT who are arguing, no, actually the sun is a major factor in the the, the climate. We're told that global sea level is rising at an alarming rate. But I had Dr. Niels Axel Morner on my program, who was um, an expert reviewer for the IPCC on the very issue of global sea level. Um, He resigned in disgust in 2012 because of the way the uh, IPCC was working. And he says, that's false. Global sea level is not rising at an alarming rate. Uh, We were told back in the 1970s, and I remember this because I am sufficiently ancient to remember the 1970s, um, we were told that the world was subject to global cooling. A little later, we're told that it's subject to global warming. Hmm. Uh, Then in the last 15 years or so, apparently the global atmospheric temperature has not been increasing as was expected. And so now we hear about climate change. That's right. And then we're hearing about climate disruption. And more recently, we've been hearing about global weirding. And we're told that the energy that was predicted to cause global warming, which we're not seeing uh, have the expected effect is, is because it, well, it's being hidden in the oceans now to be released with devastating effect later on. Hmm. But then I think wouldn't we, therefore expect to see this global sea level rising, if, in fact all this energy is being hidden in the oceans, which Dr. Morner disputes? This none of this seems to make any sense to me. And, and anyway, I feel that it smacks of saving the theory. To say, oh, well, no, the atmosphere is n- not, not behaving as we expect because it's hidden somewhere else. You know, the energy is hidden somewhere else. This really does remind me, looking at it from the point of view of the history of science, this reminds me of the Ptolemaic epicycles. You know, when there was a the geocentric theory of the uh, universe with the Earth at the center. And so the, the, the movements of the planets was expected to be in these lovely circles moving around us. But uh, observation found that that doesn't seem to be quite right. There are these funny little, every now and again, the planet seemed to do a kind of reverse for a little while and then go go back. And so um, the idea was was put that, uh, well, actually, perhaps this can be accounted for by lots and lots of little circles that can be added to the theory to explain why we seem to see the planets going around in a different way. And of course, later on, Nicholas Copernicus taught us that the solar system is in fact heliocentric, with the sun at the center, and then still later, Johannes Kepler, that the orbits of the planets are not circular, but elliptical, and then that gets rid of the anomalies. But before, by having these little epicycles, you could save the theory, you could save the cosmology of the time, and it strikes me that the same kind of thing is going on here. The world is not showing what you expect it to be, so we will add things and add things and add things to the theory to con. To save the theory. I'm not saying that's what's going on. That's how it strikes me. And therefore, I see it as being possibly unfalsifiable. Now, the philosopher of science, Karl Popper, this is one of his main things. He said that if it's science, then if a theory is scientific, it should be falsifiable in principle. That means, you know, if the theory is false, it should be possible to show that it's false. Mm. Um, with this, I, I'm wondering, actually, is that the case? If it's false, can we even show that it's false if these other alternative stories can be told about it ad infinitum? I don't know. Um, I don't think that, from what I've read anyway, that global temperature increase fits well with the timeline of industrial CO2 production. I understand that CO2 has many benefits, that plants actually crave it to to grow well. And perhaps if we had more of it, we'd have more food in the world. Um, it's not at all clear to me. I'm, this is a big one with me, actually. I, I, I'm not clear that following the so-called precautionary principle and spending trillions of dollars, which is what has been called for, right. on uh, you know, reduction of CO2, etc., um, is that really cost-effective? And, and really less damaging to human life than simply to just wait and see what happens and pay for the possible damage at a later date. Um, I find the precautionary principle is actually quite dangerous anyway because it can be used to justify pretty much anything you want to. You know, you tell a, a dramatic alarmist story and that can justify the spending of vast amounts. And are you really doing the best with your resources there? It's not at all clear. Right. For example, you know, it could be said, we're going to be hit by meteors. We could be hit by meteors at at any time. Mm -hmm. So should we therefore spend – that could wipe us out. Should we therefore spend all the money in the world on averting that possible catastrophe? Well, clearly not, you know. Um, So my my general feeling about this is that if anthropogenic global warming is false, if it's being manufactured primarily for political reasons, for one-world political reasons, I think it goes something like this. We need an issue – that will persuade the populations of the world to accept a form of world government. We therefore need a global problem that is perceived to be an existential threat that individual nations just cannot deal with on their own. It requires an international global force. And it would be desirable, according to Agenda 21, to promote deindustrialization as well. It would be desirable to promote human population reduction as well. I think anthropogenic global warming fits that scenario perfectly. Human beings, in order for to flourish, we need industry. Industry re- requires energy, and en- energy requires, at least at the moment anyway, it requires, it requires carbon dioxide producing fuels. So if you brand CO2 as a pollutant, because it's said to be this vastly important greenhouse gas that's causing dangerous warming, um, then create these powerful forms of global government to police the world's use of CO2, try to force massive reductions of it in its production, what do you get? You get world government, you get the collapse of industrialized society, and maybe you get population reduction into the bargain as well. It seems to me to fit that scenario perfectly. Now, I'm not saying I'm right. This is my suspicion, and I, I think I've given a number of reasons why I think it's rational to be suspicious. I hope that I'm proved wrong. But I do remain suspicious at my, at the moment
1: and understandably <laughs> as do we I have to say i mean there's two things really that we can we can take well at least that i 'm going to take um out of what you're saying there. one is that we can look at all the factors right this is why this is what, but the bottom line is money we are going to be charged for every little emission, you know if we go go over too much uh, Usage, we're going to be charged. That money then goes where? What? Are they doing with that money is a big question, and I'm quite sure uh, G will be able to share a little bit about you know how this has already been brought into Australia and the effect of that. I just remember the one story, and I think the end result was the, there might have been a change in this particular policy, but um, even to bury somebody was going to cost you a climate change tax, and um, so it just it was becoming ridiculous to the extreme. And at the end of the day, scientists still cannot. Prove 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 it to be true, but yet we are already being charged for it, and countries are already having to sign their lives away because of it. And I, I just find it fascinating how they would perhaps invent. I hate to use a word, but this is what it seems to be, invent another enemy, like you say, create a new enemy. I mean, wasn't terrorism just the other day the new enemy? And um, and therefore we had to sign our lives away and kind of go, okay, well, we're going to, mm. you know, give ourselves over to rigorous scrutiny and... Um, all of that kind of thing so it's just another it's just another form of a new enemy and so i find it fascinating but it's also alarming to see the kind of power it wields
0: i was going to say our prime minister is overseas at the moment and they are trying to repeal some legislation uh, put in by a previous government and the deputy opposition leader I heard her saying today that uh, with our Prime Minister's attitude on uh, climate change and global warming and and those things, that he is the Nigel, no friends, on the international stage.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Uh, boy. Well, I think this is
2: it, isn't it? It's known that individual states are going to be extremely reluctant to implement this because it's going to destroy their industry. Right. And so that then is an argument to say, well, we need to force this across the globe with an international organisation and inter- in, you know, international government. That's the only way it can happen. That's right. Yeah, that's the only way it can happen. That's so that's right. possibly how it's working.
0: Yeah, and everyone will sign up, and once they've signed up, that's it. You won't be able to have any say. You, like I said uh, right at the beginning, you you can go to your politician and say, "Well, I don't agree with this," and they'll say, "Well, look, our hands are tied. We've you know signed to these international agreements, and and that's Absolutely. that." So. That's and in fact, going.
2: That's, I'm going to echo what you say there because that's exactly the kind of thing that Martin Altman said on my program to do with the smart grid as well, mm. as a, as a, which is essentially a technocratic program. Again, the smart grid makes the most rational decisions. It, it will make, based on computer programs and algorithms, you know, it will make the most rational decision. If you don't like what's going on, you go to your uh, electricity authority or whatever and say, well, I'd like things to be differently." They'll say, sorry, hmm. it's doing the most rational thing. That's that, it.
0: That's wow. right, yes. Wow. End of story. End of
2: story.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, very, are very you guys
0: nice done? done? Are you finished? Shall all, I wind us up?
1: All fine. Wind us up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Okay. Um,
2: I, I, I suppose I could throw in my last quote from Maurice Strong that people okay. could um, yes. just ponder, which brings up a completely different dimension, but would be certainly related. See what, what happens with it. Here we go. Again, I can't actually source it, but uh, mm-hmm. I got it from a good source. So I suspect mm-hmm. that it's true. It is the responsibility of each human being today to choose between the force of darkness and the force of light. We must therefore transform our attitudes and adopt a new respect for the superior laws of divine nature.
0: Hmm. Wow. Now, oh. that was pretty dramatic reading. We should use that in the introduction, Andy. <laughs> that was very Some, good, actually. That was very let, good.
2: Let, let me, let me good source it you. from Thank its
0: God. absolute original <laughs> if wow. you do that. Some really dramatic introductory music with that one. Um, <laughs> Well, listen, uh, hey, I've um, I've enjoyed this discussion yeah. with both of you guys and I want to thank you both for your valuable input. And Julian, thanks for being willing willing to come on our show and be a part of it with us. Um, I've enjoyed that aspect as well.
2: Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, well, let me say thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's been great having this uh, conversation with you both. Uh, thank it's you. Thank you. Yeah. Um Yeah, you can find... The Mind Renewed and I have to stress that it's not Mind Renewed, it is The Mind Renewed (laughs) Um, it's exactly as it it sounds TheMindRenewed.com it's as simple as that
0: Excellent and as I said in our opening uh, I've seen two sources where the best podcast on the internet so there you go um can I just finish by saying that we believers need to be well grounded in our understanding of the scriptures I don't want to sound like a stuck record because I seem to be saying this all the time but and I don't just mean those pertaining to end times Paul told Timothy to study to show himself approved to God so it's not a matter of just reading the bible or listening to your favorite preacher but we really do have to study the scriptures to be and be grounded in them I think we need to understand that it's possible that we may face persecution, many believers already are. Uh, look at Asia and Africa for your examples there. But when we look at history of the martyrs, we can ask ourselves, we're sitting here comfortably in the West, What makes us think we won't face persecution? I think we need to be prepared to stand firm, and I'll refer you to first corinthians fifteen fifty eight and First Corinthians sixteen thirteen to fourteen. And bear in mind that we, have, we do have an enemy, and it's not a physical enemy, uh, not so much what we can see in the physical realm, because a lot of that is just for show. The main game and the main battle for believers in, is in a realm that can't be seen with our physical eyes. Mm. So i refer you to Ephesians chapter 6 to understand that more thoroughly. Never stop praying, don't live in fear, and don't let the study of end times and the new world order be the only thing that you do. Absolutely. Yeah. so that's. I'd just like to finish up with that little statement and I'm, I'm sure you guys would agree, anyway thank Absolutely. you guys, thanks very much
1: thank you, great, thank you ever so much for having to me to have you Gillian,
2: thank you, great to speak to you both, come back, oh alright then
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind, if that's okay if it's not too, no, <laughs> too no. much, no, I, very much
2: look forward, I very much look forward to having uh, both of you on my show at some point, that could be worked out that would okay. be good, Awesome. alright, excellent <laughs> thank, you. thank you, bye bye now bye bye
1: Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's mail at lightflintradio.com.